the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to another edition of The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. I'm Andy Longhurst. On the program, the 2013 Year in Review, Part 2. On the hour, we're going to be looking back at 2013 and the critical discussions um, from from the program over the past year. Lots to come, uh, lots of great discussions. Uh, We're looking back into the archives. Stay with me. I'm Andy Longhurst here on The City. Don't turn that dial. And thanks so much for being uh, here with me on the program. This is The City, here Tuesdays, 5 to 6 p.m., live on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and uh, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, Burnaby, up at uh, Simon Fraser University on Burnaby Mountain, and that's uh, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m., and uh, as well, uh, cjsf.ca um, f- during that time. And you can also find the program as a podcast at thecityfm.org and uh, check out uh, the program on Facebook by searching uh, The City Critical Urban Discussions. Um, so we're going to be going back to some of the highlights from uh, the past year, 2013. It's been a, a busy one, uh, a tremendous amount of uh, things going on, and we're going to highlight um, some of the past coverage, um, discussions, interviews, and uh, commentaries um, from the program. And we're going to start off with um, uh, t- discussing a report uh, called Divisions and Disparities in Lotus Land. And this was a report on uh, the growing uh, social polarization, socioeconomic polarization in Vancouver. And this is a report that was um, uh, written and produced by uh, David Lay and Nicholas Lynch. Um, uh, David Lay, a a UBC uh, urban geography professor, and uh, Nicholas Lynch, who who graduated um, and uh, was a PhD student at uh, UBC and is... um, has is the one uh, featured in this discussion. So we're going to go to that first um, on the program, but we have lots lined up, everything ranging from uh, inequality to uh, to issues of employment, labor, um, to um, feminist urbanism and uh, social movement. So lots to come on the hour. And in fact, back in 2003, 2004, uh, there was uh, David Olchansky, who's a so, so, uh, social worker, 
sociologist and sort of general urban specialist in Toronto was given some money uh, by the uh, by the Canadian government to conduct some research on, as well as uh, you know some some non charity or sorry non profit or charitable organizations. Toronto put money in to, to discover what was happening in Toronto in terms of this concept of polarization and inequality. Uh, he came out with a, a quite an amazing story narrative um, and research about Toronto, showing three distinct cities in Toronto. Uh, since that report, which was extremely popular. Uh, you know, even got press with the with the mayor at the time, uh, Miller. Um, uh, they they spun that into questions of what's happening in the other Canadian CMAs, other Canadian major major Canadian cities. And so we were lucky enough to get funded for some research here in Vancouver to ask the same question: What's happening with polarization and income change in Vancouver? Um, so so that was uh, that's really what we've what we've done here is done that research. So let's let's go into some of those findings. Um, the report is titled. Uh, Divisions and disparities in Lotus Land. Um, what are those divisions and disparities, and what are some of the major findings coming out of the report? Yeah, well, l- let me first say that uh, that you know cities have always been divided. They've always been, um, uh, in some ways, divided. And, and for the longest time, urban scholars have have focused on you know asking the question how how have race, class, religion, um, how are, how have these things uh, really impacted um, the f- morphology and the sociology of the city? Uh, we've we've been we've been interested here in asking the question, of course, um, what kind of new what kind of new configurations are we seeing in Vancouver, and uh, and really the, what we're finding and what we what we sort of found um, in in our research is that Vancouver is is is, is gone from primarily a middle class city in 1970 uh, to a to a, well, what was firmly a middle class city to a highly um, divided city. Uh, specifically by income, by socioeconomic income sta- status, uh, and and this means that of course that we're we're seeing uh, a polarization, if you will, so um, a polarization of neighbor at the neighborhood level um, of groups growing in the higher income level and and groups growing at the lower income level and an, a, almost an evisceration of the middle class, slow evisceration. It's not complete, uh, it's not even, uh, but it's but it's certainly happening. And so, uh, like the Toronto case study, we we sort of focus on on asking the question: Do we have three cities in, in Vancouver? And and it's not not the same situation as in Toronto. The the, the divisions and the, essentially the inequality and the polarization in Toronto is much worse. Uh, but but it's not to say that. Uh, but that's to say that you know Vancouver actually we're seeing we're seeing a case of of uh, of quite a quite an amazing um, rate of polarization and inequality as well. When you talk about the three cities, um, you create, you sort of separate um, some categories based on income and create um, a middle class. And can you talk about the the methodology or, or how you went about um, creating these categories to actually say that, oh, the middle class yeah. is is disappearing within the city and that it is more polarized. Yeah, so methodologically, of course, when, when, you, when you're studying um, socioeconomic status, uh, you have to make categories and you have to, you have to sort of think about and, and de- de- define categories in order to show you know, uh, income change and difference over time. One of the things that we did was, and, and, and I have to say that you know, defining the middle class becomes kind of arbitrary in a way. Uh, you certainly have to follow through when you make your category. You have to follow through in all forms of statistical analysis with that same category. The the what we did is we we defined the middle class by uh, a, specifically a range, right? So if the average we use the average or the median income in Vancouver, 
and we said, okay, any any group that um, that is above 15% of that average income, if they're above 15% above, those those we're going to categorize as higher income groups. Anybody below the 15% uh, median income, so median income and 15% below, we we categorize as sort of lower uh, income. And so middle income becomes a range in that 15 plus or minus. Now, of course, you can you can change. Uh, your metric, you can say twenty uh, percent or etc. So in Toronto, they used a twenty percent metric, and in Vancouver, we used a fifteen percent metric um, to show to show income change. Uh, now, of course, as I said, these categories they're, they're constructed, right? They're not natural, and so um, we have to we have to acknowledge those categories and follow through with that. Uh, so it, it you know for for our for our purpose that fifteen percent above above and below really worked for defining the middle class in our research, um, and, uh, and and clearly what we see is is even if you do change that number to twenty percent or uh, you still see essentially a hollowing out of the middle of the middle income groups, and that means that uh, we're we're having a, a good number of people in Vancouver that are going from middle income to upper income, and more importantly, and a good number of people going from what they what used to be middle income to lower income, right? So we're seeing an expansion of those two groups at both poles. So what does that geography then look like if you are seeing the hollowing out of, mm. of uh, middle class households and yeah. um, growing numbers of households at the bottom? Uh, how does that play out within the city and, and I guess secondly um, uh, across the region? Yeah. So one of the one of the really interesting findings of our research um, is that we, we're starting to see a, a sort of a new social socioeconomic morphology of the city. And so, you know, we, we, we do several different things. The first one we do is, first thing we do is we take a snapshot of 1970 and we compare that snapshot to 2005. We also do a sort of a, a 1970-2005 overlay, now change map. So the first one is, is the snapshot, 1970. Um, we see a sort of a post, uh, post-war, um, you know, industrial uh, staple society in Vancouver, primarily a city defined by um, by middle class groups in the suburbs. You know the classic suburban Canadian suburban dream is is alive and well in 1970 Vancouver. We have the downtown east side, which is a which is a pretty common in the in the, that period of time where you have uh, extremely low income group uh, close to the downtown, close to the inner city and the CBD. Part of that is an is is an historical response to uh, work in the city. Um, uh, you know, it's pretty common for low-income groups to settle near, uh, you know, industries where they can get close access to. Um, so really sort of a concentric, the sort of the concentric rings model of, of post-industrial, or the industrial city was quite clear in Vancouver. You, you fast forward to 2005, and what you see is a, is a dramatic transformation of that morphology. And so from, from 1970 we, uh, to 2005, we have this sort of post-industrial city. And, and in fact, not just post-industrial. Um, and I should qualify post-industrial, the movement of industry to uh, a non-industry, and in this case a creative um, ser- service-based economy. But also we have a por- post-corporate society where a lot of corporate headquarters who may have you know, sort of cited in Vancouver primarily f- for the um, staple or, uh, industries and t- timber and all this stuff, stuff. but also a, a post-staple city, right? So, so no longer are, is timber coming into Vancouver to supply um, as, a, as part of a movement network. So 2005, that transformation means a, a whole lot for, for how, how and where people live. So in 2005, middle-income groups have been uh, primarily squeezed out. 
lower income groups have have expanded. The downtown east side has pretty much stayed low income for the most part, but it's changing. Uh, but lower income groups uh, are also sited in neighborhoods along the the, uh, the SkyTrain line into the, along the Kingsway corridor. Lower income groups are, are and neighborhoods are starting to pop up in suburbs, right? So. And this this suburban issue is is quite an important one. We've we've talked to, geographers have been talking about the suburbanization of, or the, sorry, the the uh, impoverization of suburbia for for a while in the United States. Um, there's been some research focused on Canada asking the same question. And what this shows us is that lower income neighborhoods are starting to pop up in 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 what were highly middle class suburbs. Dr. Nicholas Lynch, and he was talking about a report uh, that came out, Divisions and Disparities in Lotus Land, talking about income and socioeconomic polarization across the Vancouver region. And now next up, uh, we brought you a documentary um, produced by Peter Driftmuir um, in um, April of 2013. And this was originally um, a radio documentary produced um, for Red Eye on Vancouver, uh, Vancouver Cooperative Radio 100.5 FM. And that was in the fall of 2012. And we aired it in April of, of 2013 um, because it is such an important topic. And this is about uh, the viaducts in Vancouver and uh, plans by uh, the ruling Vision Vancouver um, to, to bring those down. And that documentary was called Tearing Down the Viaducts, Green for all or green for some and we're going to now go to that documentary and again uh, thank you to Peter Driftmuir for um, permission to rebroadcast that and again um, this can be found at thecityfm.org and in this clip you're going to be hearing from um, uh, Peter interviewing um, gardeners from Cottonwood Community Gardens and Strathcona Community Gardens Um, and this is um, uh, the area that um, if the viaducts come down um, there's been um, talks talk talk about uh, putting a a road um, down there in place of the viaducts and so the discussion um, is around um, some of these concerns about losing the gardens what and what stage is the decision currently at have they already is it already a done deal that the viaducts are coming down the city, uh, the city has um, uh, conducted a survey on the viaducts, and the public is in favor of taking the viaducts down. They still have to find the money to do it. Uh, they have to um, get uh, a financing scheme in order and get it approved. Uh, but it looks to me like the viaducts will come down. Um, it hasn't passed through city council. It hasn't had final, final approval. But the, the concept, they do have a concept and a, a, a plan for taking the, removing the viaducts. So part of that plan is just deciding what to do with that extra traffic and so far not you know, really. on the table. N- not really. That was, um, I guess, in the July 24th meeting. They were kind of joined. But what we heard is that it'll go back to two proposals. And we're not sure if this is going to happen. But how it was originally set out was it was going to be um, the viaduct removal, and then after that they discussed the Eastern Core strategy, and that's where the Malkin connector would come in as part of that Eastern Core. So we're, we're not quite sure where that is, where that's at. Yeah. If, if the worst case scenario happens, um, what will that mean for you both personally? Yeah, I love this place. I love coming here, and I think it'll be a big loss for the, the city as well and for the community and the neighborhood. 
I think it, it really serves the community well. It is part of the park, and I really think it needs to stay intact. Uh, I work on a, a number of the common areas of the garden and really enjoy it and really like seeing it develop and grow and just keep getting ideas for how to make it better and yeah, more beautiful. And, well, uh, I've been a member for 18 or 19 years, and uh, a lot of those years I've worked on the common areas. I've worked on uh, different uh, areas in the garden. I've planted and propagated a lot of stuff in the garden. Um, uh, personally, it will be devastating for me. Um, I don't know if I could bring myself to come back to the remnants. Um, but um, I. More than that, I think it would be uh, devastating for the neighborhood. Uh, this is a big success on the, on the downtown east side, and uh, it should be acknowledged that it is. Why do you think the city is willing to consider this and willing to have Cottonwood on the chopping block? Well, um, I think it's a matter of money. Um, you know, they, they own the right away. It's cheap. Um, uh, property values on, in Strathcona and uh, around the uh, uh, False Creek will uh, increase if the buttocks come down. Uh, so it's a win-win for everybody except uh, us and the poor people in Strathcona. Uh, I agree with that. I mean, there's not any houses along here. They have to deal with the, the businesses across Malcolm, but most of the access is through the garden, and, and uh, there's no property owners here. We're, we just, we're just on a lease, so uh, the lease can be broken, and we always knew that. We're on sort of borrowed land. But I think what we've created here, especially since they're creating, wanting to create so many community gardens in the city, we've, we've already got one that's established, and isn't needing any more money or startup money. We're self-sufficient. We have this um, beautiful space that we're very grateful for being able to garden in, but we've also created, I think, a very beautiful space. So, but I think, like Landon, it comes down to, to money, to development, and uh, what the city can get out of it. What could the city do to protect Cottonwood and the other, or any community garden, um, going into the future? <clears throat> well, I think community gardens need some tenure. Um, we, have, we, we don't actually have a lease, we have a license to garden. It's about akin to a ball league having a right to use a ball field. So, uh, and none of the community gardens in the city has a, a tenure uh, of any consequence. The ones on private land, of course, have no tenure. So, what can the city do? Um, the city could make an example of Cottonwood and say that this place is important, the volunteer effort that's gone into it is important, the biodiversity is important, the insect and bird habitat is important, and we should find another way to move traffic through our city other than destroying these places. Precarious employment is increasing in the Hamilton and Greater Toronto area, and its harmful effects on individuals, families, and community life are documented in a recently released uh, research report. 
And that report called It's More Than Poverty, Employment Precarity and Household Well-Being uh, is a report that was a collaboration between McMaster University, uh, United Way of Toronto and the Poverty and Employment Precarity in Southern Ontario group. And uh, this report, um, I discussed uh, the findings with um, Wayne Luchuk. He's Professor of Labour Studies and Economics at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And that was from June 6th of 2013. And we're going to go to that now. This is the 2013 Year in Review on CITR 101.9 FM and CJSF 90.1. Let's jump into some of those findings um, and, and, and relate this specifically to Toronto. I know there's a bit of a geography to this and some regions um, have higher percentages of precarious employment. But uh, can you uh, run us through a number of the findings from this project? Well, I think one of the one of the key findings is that when we asked people, um, do you have a, a full-time job that uh, pays you some benefits, so something beyond a wage, so maybe a bit of a pension or some health benefits, uh, and that you expect to have that job in a year, uh, only half of our, our sample, so it goes from Hamilton to Toronto, that whole area, and these are people ages 25 to 65, so prime sort of earning years, only half said they had that kind of a job. The other half had something else. Uh, some of them were in uh, this, what we call precarious forms of employment. Uh, some of them were in, in permanent part-time employment. Uh, and, and about 20% of them were in jobs that might have been full-time, but they didn't know whether they are going to have those jobs in a year or they were jobs that didn't provide them a pension or any, any kind of benefits. Uh, and these are all markers of... Uh, jobs that you know, really don't have a, uh, a long-term uh, future uh, in them. And I think that was, a bit, that was quite a surprise, how few people have those old kind of traditional jobs. Think of it as sort of the Ford General Motors uh, kind of job, the IBM jobs, that once you had them, you had them for life. People now are in a much more flexible uh, situation. The other, I think, really key finding that we have found is how this is affecting uh, household well-being, uh, and community participation. Uh, in terms of household well-being, this sort of insecurity of employment, so you don't know what your paycheck's going to be in a month, you don't know if you're going to have a job in a month, you don't know what your work schedule is going to be, um, you don't have any buffers against an unexpected health outcome or you know, if your kids get your teeth knocked out or if they want to go to camp, things like that. All this uncertainty is creating stresses in households. Um, and uh, certainly one of the responses that we found was that people are delaying forming households. So they're getting married later. Uh, they're delaying decisions to have children. Because, you know, a lot of people are telling us, look, it, I, I don't know what my income is going to be in six months. How can I plan to have ch- kids now? Because, you know, they're a long-term commitment. So all those kind of effects uh, came out. The other thing that we found, um, and this was complex, was how this is affecting how people engage in their community. On the one hand, having this kind of flexible, insecure, precarious employment does open up some opportunities for some people to be more engaged in their communities. And this is particularly women, women who are telling us, um, you know, look, I'm not willing to commit to a full-time permanent job because I want to become more engaged in my school, in my community, etc. cetera. Uh, but for other people, this kind of employment was really a barrier. Uh, and they were telling us, look, I, I can't even think about becoming engaged in my community because I'm waiting for the temp agency to call me when I might have work. Or I mean, how can I commit to coaching my kid's ball team on Wednesday night when I don't know my work schedule from week to week? Uh, or 
uh, I can't really volunteer for a place because I can't afford to give my time away for free. I'm always out there hustling, looking for a job, uh, increasing my training uh, to make me more employable, things like that. So in terms of the community part, there was, a, there was a real mix between people who could be more engaged, but then a large number of people who were actually less engaged in their community. And it's those kind of social effects that we're most interested in looking at in, in terms of uh, the long-term future of the project. Mm-hmm. Are there racial and gender dimensions uh, to the findings? Well, I mean, it's certainly true that um, uh, immigrants, people of, of, of color, uh, racial minorities, uh, their, their main access to the labor market has always been through this kind of precarious employment. And that is true also, uh, has also been true for women. Uh, they've long uh, not had access to the kind of privileged jobs that white men had of access to. But I think what was surprising in the study is to what extent this new form of employment is reaching into sectors of our society which have formerly been immune from this kind of employment. So the university educated, uh, the uh, uh, white-collar employment, high-tech employment, the, the, the media, the, 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 the arts, these are all areas where maybe in the past there was less of this kind of employment, and now there's been sort of a, a harmonization so there really are not big differences in terms of the insecurity of employment between uh, men and women, uh, between whites and, and, and racialized minorities. There are certainly still big differences in terms of pay rates and benefits. So women and racialized minorities are still massively disadvantaged. But this kind of insecurity is now pretty widespread throughout our, our labor market. Hmm. Also, are there are there um, disadvantages to being young um, in terms of accessing stable and, and permanent employment? Yeah, the the, uh, the study itself we, we we only collected data for people age 25 and up, and in part that's because we've known we've always known that young people when they first come into the labor market they tend to access the labor market through less secure employment. They shop around. Then maybe after three or four years, they latch on to a, a good job, a permanent job, um, and, they, and they traditionally stuck with that for a, a long time. I think what we, what we know from uh, other research is that that period of sort of, if you might put it, shopping around uh, is getting longer and longer. And so some people are still in that kind of precarious situation when they're in their 30s. Uh, and some people are never going to escape that. So if you're working uh, in the media, for instance, you're almost certainly going to be on some kind of uh, a contract for most of your working life. So I think the real implications for young people uh, are that this kind of insecurity may be a permanent feature of their lives. They may never get onto that permanent job. The other thing I think that we know from uh, other research is that if you do get a permanent job, the, the, the period in which you have that job is getting shorter and shorter. So people are now are finding themselves in their, in their late 40s suddenly being made redundant um, and being pushed back into the labor market, which is increasingly insecure. So that idea of a lifetime job with one employer, is, I think, is becoming a, a myth for a lot of people. And that was Dr. Wayne Luchuk of McMaster University, and he was talking about a recent uh, report from, uh, from 2013, and that report is called It's More Than Poverty, Employment Precarity and Household Well-Being. And uh, again, you can find that full discussion at thecityfm.org. And we're going to go now to um, a, a podcast from June 19th of 2013. And this is Dr. Tiffany Muller-Murdahl. And she is um, in 
gender studies and uh, urban studies at Simon Fraser University. She's the junior Ruth Wynne Woodward Chair in Gender and Urban Studies. And uh, she gave a, a, a speech at the 2013 Engaging Women Transforming Cities Conference, hosted by the Women Transforming Cities Organization. And uh, she, uh, I guess this, I should also say this conference was uh, in May of 2013, and we brought that um, co- content to you in June. And she's talking about interventions uh, for feminist, what she calls um, for feminist urban futures. We're going to go to uh, Dr. Tiffany Muller Myrtle next on the 2013 Year in Review here on The City. So in closing, I want to offer that this vision is not uh, one-dimensional, it is intersectional and feminist, which means that feminist urban futures does not and cannot focus exclusively on women. As we know, it's not simply along lines of gender and gender identity that women face discrimination. We all contend with the ways that class and race, able-bodiedness and sexuality, age and immigrant status, and all markers of visible and invisible difference are mutually produced and they structure our experiences of being othered. And those uh, experiences are different in different places. Um, The ways that our identities are felt and experienced uh, are intimately tied to these spaces that we occupy. So the complexity of our lives requires our focus uh, to be on equity, but not through the singular lens of gender. And at the same time, we need to ensure, and this I think is really tough, we need to ensure that gender doesn't disappear. So my very last point, I promise, uh, I'm really pleased to be a relative newcomer to the massive Divided Cities research team, which is now a six-city study that examines rising income inequality uh, across Canada. So far, this research has done amazing Uh, an amazing job illustrating what it means for places like Toronto and Vancouver, for example, to become more gentrified within the urban core and what this means for the ongoing displacement of the working poor, whether or not that work is paid or unpaid, um, as well as what it means for new immigrants. And the slide here uh, speaks to recent immigrants by census tract, and I'm sorry I couldn't fit them on the same slide, the slide here is average household incomes, and what we all uh, uh, see is that the uh, areas with less racialized, uh, fewer people of color, fewer new immigrants uh, um, are uh, wealthier. And of course, that's com- more complicated in, in Vancouver, um, but that is the general trend. Uh, what it doesn't tell us what this data doesn't tell us, though the stats should be readily available at the census tract level, is how disproportionately represented women are in low-income CMAs. So we need to reclaim this analysis for our own ends and make sure gender remains a central concern and consideration. So the tasks ahead of us uh, are perhaps daunting, but I think together as people transforming cities to be the ideal places they can be for women and girls and all who have been historically left out of traditional city-making processes, we can face this challenge confidently. Thank you. And that was Dr. Tiffany Muller-Myrdal. And now we're going to go to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And uh, this was a conversa- conversation with an anthropologist um, in, in Rio. And uh, this is uh, now Dr. Cecilia Mayo, and she is a professor of social and cultural anthropology at the Federal University of Rio. And uh, we were discussing, um, this is very much um, 
about social movements in Rio, um, in Brazil, about um, quality of life and mobility in the city and the growing disparities um, that, that they were experiencing in the city, continue to experience, um, but that were being articulated in certain ways through mass demonstrations and marches um, and a, a lot of movement around um, uh, bringing different groups together and different social movements together to argue for uh, something different in the city. And uh, we're going to now go to that uh, dispatch uh, from Rio. And this is from July of 2013 of this past year, uh, here on the 2013 Year in Review, uh, Part 2 on the city. Let's talk about that resistance, which um, maybe as, as news reports um, coming across in North America have characterized uh, the movements arising out of uh, mm-hmm. the the free fair movement, um, but around larger questions of quality of life in um, Brazil's cities. Can you yeah. talk about, um, from your perspective, what you're seeing in places like Rio and really what this movement um, is about? Yeah, it's about many, many issues. I think um, since uh, for... We, we observe in Brazil like this huge economic growth, which is not, um, which is not, uh, it's, on, it's, it's, it's an economic growth that has not, re- it's not reaching everyone. So it's not well shared mm-hmm. amongst the population. And, and so what we observe is the pattern of, of an unequal, uh, distribution of wealth is maintained. For you to have an idea, the last uh, 10 years, the gross national product or the gross, the, the gross domestic product uh, per capita is five times bigger than it used to be, but the minimum wages are 30% lower. So we, we see an economic boom in, in the country but most people, especially those who live in the cities, are not, uh, they do not really have a better life. In the sense that most of this boom is called, is being, um, is being related to changing the, the infrastructure of the cities. So with this, the, the World Cup and the Olympic Games, there is a huge change in the dynamics, for instance, of, uh, of land owning and uh, property owning the cities, so it's much, the speculation is, is really amazing, it's like out of control. Mm-hmm. And people that, for instance, pay a, um, a rent, now they cannot afford, they have to change for, for areas far from the center in order to be able to live. Because in Brazil it's, it's different from the North, from North America because we, the closer you live, from in the center, the better you live, mm-hmm. and like the sub, what we call suburbs are like peripheral areas that no one wants to to go to. Mm-hmm. So people are being, uh, let's say, expelled from the center of the cities, and are obliged to live in the suburbs with lower infrastructure and high costs of transportation. So, so this process was going on for for some years. Uh, and the costs for transport, transportation are very, very high. Some people prefer to sleep in work 
because they cannot afford going and coming back. For you to have an idea, downtown Rio, there are people that sleep on the streets, not because they don't have a home, but because it's so so expensive to go home every night mm -hmm. that they prefer to to stay on the streets. Pay they 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 are organized. They pay for an area where they can sleep uh, on the streets, and and the next day they can go to work. So it's it's really a serious structural problem for a long long time. But now it's getting worse because uh, the, the transport quality is, is terrible, and the salaries are losing their power of um, of buying things, and so. And at the same time, the city the, there is an insatisfaction with the the authoritarian uh, pro uh, uh, policy policies uh, mm -hmm. because they are removing people from their homes, just like it happened in China for the Olympic Games. It's happening now in Brazil. Uh, people that live in areas where they are going to build stadiums or build roads, they they have to leave. Or simply, for instance, uh, a very well-known case here, people that are, will live around the, the autodromo and where they have the race, the car races. These people are, they live in a favela, which means a, a low-income settlement, mm -hmm. because um, they don't, they don't look beautiful, their houses are poor, uh, even though they have, they, they would not disturb what already exists there. Uh, they simply want to to clear the area so that the the tourists and everyone who's coming for the games will not see them. So these people will have to leave their home. So a basic human right, which is living, have have a house, have a have a place where um, where you can have a, a, a security and and a minimum of comfort is being under threat in Brazil. Really? 
And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. We're going to now hear from uh, what's going on in the uh, Grandview Woodland uh, community planning process. And this is from uh, summer of 2013. And this was... um, uh, what you're going to hear next is um, a feature that was uh, produced for Groundwire, which is uh, produced uh, through the National Campus and Community Radio Association. And it's a national coast-to-coast uh, radio news program um, produced every two weeks. And uh, this was from um, a full-length one-hour um, uh, documentary about the planning process in this neighborhood in East Vancouver. In July 2011, Vancouver City Council voted to direct city staff to begin the community planning process for the Grandview Woodland neighborhood in the heart of East Vancouver. The neighborhood contains a substantial amount of First Nations housing, cooperatives, public housing, and market rentals. The neighborhood is also known for large historic homes. Over the past two years, planning staff have engaged with residents on transportation, arts and culture, and housing. In June, the City of Vancouver presented the draft plan back to the community, and to the surprise of many, the plan proposes approximately 10 towers ranging from 22 to 36 stories, and the upzoning of substantial portions of the neighborhood, which are currently low-rise rental apartment buildings, duplexes, and single-family homes, many of them with multiple rental suites. Residents and neighborhood leaders are shocked, particularly because community members were not consulted on the proposed land use directions. This is Jack King. He's the president of the Grandview Woodland Area Council, and uh, here are his thoughts. The amount of upzoning that's proposed covers an enormous part of Grandview, none of which was in any of the public discussions. So it's um, the first view of it is, is simply one of shock. I was actually blown away when I saw it. I thought, whoa, what's this? Natty Heron is a Grandview Woodland resident Also formerly on the Grandview Woodland Area Council, she provided her feedback and comments on the draft plan. I know that we had mentioned talk about artists, quarters, um, interactive uh, workspaces, living spaces, but certainly not those many towers. So if the proposed clustering of towers did not emerge out of community consultation at the housing workshop, then where did they come from? My theory is it would be the TransLink plan the Greater Vancouver Transling Plan for density because I believe that's all synced to the commercial drive Broadway SkyTrain station. I spoke with Jeff Busby, a senior transportation planner at TransLink, the regional transportation authority. I would say our input is mostly in the form of general guidance. So we've published transit-oriented community design guidelines. TransLink doesn't have a position on the specifics in this plan. So if TransLink doesn't have an opinion, what does the City of Vancouver have to say? The City's refusal to provide comment on the community planning process underway when residents feel like their views have not been properly represented is especially bizarre at a time when the Mayor's Office has launched an Engaged City Task Force to address the lack of civic engagement in the city and frustration with public consultation exercises. We are going to hear next from Engaged City Task Force member Lindsay Popes. As a resident, when I think of being engaged in the public consultation process, I instantly feel distrust. I have a general sense that the way to engage is somehow obscured. I don't necessarily feel that the process is obvious and I'm automatically defensive. Like, I automatically feel like I will be engaged in some sort of fight. 
And if neighborhood residents are gearing up for a fight, is it simply because they are looking for a fight with the city? Or is it because they feel that the very fabric of their East Vancouver neighborhood is being threatened by the proposed land use changes of extensive upzonings throughout the neighborhood? Housing is viewed uh, purely as an asset and a commodity. And it's not viewed as a place where people live, a place where people build a community. Robin is a renter on East First Avenue. I personally have been renovated and then witnessed that house be renovated and go back on the market for more than double what the rent was before. I don't feel like that house even needed to be renovated. Um, And until we can stop looking at housing purely as development contracts that will be awarded uh, with this plan and ways to make money, um, we're going to be stuck with this problem. In a neighborhood where 66% of dwellings are rented, compared to 52% within the city as a whole, there are important questions about the possible political and social shifts in the neighborhood if existing housing stock is demolished to make way for new and more expensive rental apartments and condominiums and the higher-income households that can afford this new housing, a process defined by urban scholars and activists as gentrification. How does widespread condominium development and a culture of property ownership affect a neighborhood and a city more broadly? I asked Leslie Kern. She is assistant professor of gender studies at Mount Allison University and author of Sex and the Revitalized City, Gender, Condominium Development, and Urban Citizenship. A city that's encouraging this sense of pure self-sufficiency, protect your own investment, take care of yourself, protect your own living space, be secure, and so on, then... Is there any incentive to argue for those things collectively? While the city has put aside the proposal for 22 to 36-story towers for the time being, this has done little to remedy the distrust and anger that many residents expressed at a recent public forum. Hundreds of us have participated in the community planning process in good faith over the last year. A very aggressive set of proposals that you've put out. And so naturally, it's generating a lot of hostility and anger. Mm -hmm. This dynamic does not make for good planning. It does not make for good neighborliness. For Groundwire, I'm Andy Longhurst at CITR in Vancouver. And now we're going to go to an August uh, 2013 um, podcast where we brought you more content from the uh, Women Transforming Cities National Conference uh, from May of this year. And we're going to hear next from um, Prabha Kosla, and she is discussing gender equality and social inclusion in municipal policies and services, and she's an urban planner. Again, this is the 2013 Year in Review here on the city on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. But in in terms of urban planning, I want to talk a bit about, and I think a lot of you know, like in the in the early planning of cities, and what we did is we the cities were designed by men for men, so it was able-bodied, childless men and how they went to work and how they came home. It was not about women's journeys to work. Uh, We were seen as, you know, working in the home, in the private sphere. Men work outside the home, in the public sphere. So all those divisions, which are false dichotomies, because women have always worked outside the home. Women do have the right to public space, but they have actually shaped a lot of what urban planning became in terms of planning our cities. So my argument is the need for local governments to focus 
focus on what is women's day-to-day living, where so many, the majority of women do so-called work in the home, in what I call the care economy, and that as part of a local government, they have a mandate and a responsibility to the public good, the public good also being half of who lives, women, who lives in, in cities, which is women and girls. So... Um, my, I'm a planner, so my, my interest is more in, in looking at urban planning, but I just want to underline how much urban planning shapes how um, each of us live. Um, you know, it, it shapes sort of density, it's, it shapes the space of cities, it's space where, it shapes where transit go or does not go, um, you know, where condos go up and they do not go up, what kind of recreational services we get or, or we don't. And... Um, I, I did a quick review of the City of Toronto's official plan, the online version. I tried to see what they said about women. Well, surprisingly, the official plan does not mention women once. Neither does it mention First Nations or Aboriginal peoples. Um, it does mention people with uh, disabilities and seniors, but it does not distinguish that uh, men with disabilities and women with disabilities have different realities and needs and that older men and older women also have different priorities in cities. So they're mentioned in very uh, gender-neutral terms. To me, what this says is that really women are missing from shaping um, the city and defining its priorities. And I'm sure Toronto is not the only municipality in Canada where women are missing from the official plan. I think that's probably true in many other Canadian uh, cities and towns. However, what we do know is that women are organizing and mobilizing on a day-to-day living to change our cities, to make our cities work for us. So in spite of the the non-existence and the disappearance from the official plan, we do know that we are part of what is making cities work better, function better. It's just that we are often not represented in the official power structures. And those are, the, again, patriarchally driven, and those are some of the structures we do, we do need to change. Um, okay, the other, the other thing I want to talk about is um, sort of poverty and the growing inequality in Canada. I think that we, we all hear about it, we know about it, and many of us live it. And to me, this is really part of the bigger picture of how neoliberalism is influencing Canada. Um, I look at the various crises of capitalism, the financial meltdown. I look at what I feel is a very misled austerity agenda at the municipal and federal levels. And to me, all of those kinds of things are fueling the poverty in Canadian cities and the, and the disparity and inequality. Um, I feel obviously local governments have a, a role to also address this. And that was Prabhakosla, an urban planner um, based out of Toronto, talking about um, gender-inclusive and socially inclusive uh, planning that is attentive uh, to the needs of of women and girls in cities and changing how planning is done um, and really changing those power structures um, and how we shape cities. Next, we're going to hear from uh, Dr. Leslie Kernan. She is um, at Mount Allison University, and she's the author of the book Sex and the Revitalized City, Gender, Condominium Development, and Urban Citizenship. And uh, she'll be talking about a number of things. And again, this is just uh, merely a a highlight from um, our summer 2013 uh, full-length discussion. And you can find that, again, um, as as well as all of these discussions at thecityfm.org. 
I want to ask you, um, as we just wrap up here, to maybe reflect on what you think some of the political implications are um, by seeing um, the the downtown landscape um, increasingly become one that is the gr- the growth is determined um, by private developers and. I think also realizing, I think it, it questions what is the role of the planner um, and are planners actually planning and helping to shape cities for people or are they taking a backseat to developers? But I guess my question is politically, if if this is um, the the form and um, the trajectory of, of the inner city or the downtown, does this pose political questions about what the city um, is to look like and, and how it is to be governed and, and who governs it? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there might be some similarities in that the the kind of the home ownership model, um, but also this kind of, as we said already, transient home ownership model where not only are you buying a home, you're going to live there for a while, but you're already thinking of turning it around as, as an investment, right? So it's it's almost more of a well, like a mutual fund than a, than a home. It kind of raises the question as to whether condominiums are perhaps a kind of depoliticizing force, right, in that people um, buy into them for, for perhaps primarily economic purposes, and then protecting that investment is going to be um, the central concern. And we could compare that to suburbia, where we tend to see that people um, it's believed that people become more conservative as they become homeowners. Not only do they have to manage their own you know, lifelong debt to a bank in terms of their mortgage, but they also want to protect those property values and so things that are seen as um, you know, potentially controversial land uses and so on come up against a lot of resistance. So we might see a similar trend with condominiums where, where people... Um, become less interested in perhaps social justice issues or diversity, multiculturalism or whatever, and, and just seek to protect the value of of that investment on the ground. And I think then, you know, the, the broader implication there is that um, there's a very individualized rationale behind that, right, that people are sort of being encouraged to think in very individualistic terms. And not that I think that all condo owners are somehow naturally predatory and individualistic, but the form of housing itself kind of encourages that mentality, right? And so that was sort of this argument that I was trying to make, that a neoliberal um, rationality around being self-sufficient and autonomous and protecting yourself and creating wealth and investment and so on is kind of trickling down into um, the identity of, of the condo owner, whether they want it to or not, really. And so the idea that if you have this uh, a city that's encouraging this sense of pure self-sufficiency, protect your own investment, take care of yourself, protect your own living space, be secure, and so on, then is there any incentive to argue for those things collectively, right? Is there any incentive to join social movements, for example, that try to make the city safer, for women in general, in a broad sense, or is it about just finding a living space where you can feel safe because there's a security guard? So I think there are broader implications then in terms of social justice movements, who's likely to be involved in them, the extent to which people are likely to care about the issues that extend beyond the walls of the condominium or the condominium courtyard. So bigger questions then, as you say, about sort of citizenship, social solidarity, building strong neighborhoods, 
Um, I, I don't want to be overly pessimistic. I, I don't think it's impossible that condo owners or that condos can be good neighbors and, and, and be good urban citizens. But the, the form, the economic form, the physical form, and so on, I think present some strong challenges for that to actually happen. And that was Dr. Leslie Kern talking about her book, Sex and the Revitalized City. And that concludes uh, part two of the 2013 year in review on the city here on CATR 101.9 FM and CJSF. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. And of course, thank you as well for tuning in over the course of the past year. It's been a busy one and uh, we've had some quite fascinating uh, discussions on the program. And uh, we'll be back next week with um, more highlights from 2013 and uh, a special guest as well. So again, uh, thanks, as always, for tuning in. And uh, be sure to check out the program at thecityfm.org, on Facebook, The City Critical Urban Discussions, and on Twitter, the city underscore FM. I'm Andy Longhurst. Have a wonderful week.